Welcome to King Size. King Through the Ages, as Stephen King podcast. For obsessives, by obsessives. With Matt Robinson and Jamie Stewart. The 1980s, part one. So, constant listeners, welcome back, welcome back, as uh, Jamie Stewart and I take your hands and walk with you fearlessly through the dark. There's nothing to be afraid of, and, well, maybe there's a few things. Uh, But we are now going with Stephen King in the 80s, the experimental phase of King's writing, and who better to guide us through this incredible decade of King's than Jamie Stewart. How are you, Sir. I am well. Thank you for having me back. Oh, it's grand to have you. Just had so much fun just go racing through the 70s with you. And um absolutely fascinating stuff. And wow, what a decade we are about to embark on. Uh so Jamie, without any further ado, King in the 80s. What do you got for us, man? <laughs> well, so I'll go down the list of what was published. So starting in 1980, we've got Firestarter, Roadwork. Dance Macabre, Cujo, The Running Man, The Gunslinger, Different Seasons, Christine, Cycle of the Werewolf, Pet Cemetery, Eyes of the Dragon, The Talisman, Thinner, Skeleton Crew, It, Drawing of the Three, Misery, Tommy Knockers, and The Dark Half. <laughs> That's a lot. <laughs> I mean, listen, what was that man doing in the 80s? I mean, clearly, you know. Well, a lot of cocaine. <laughs> yeah. Like... <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's like two books a year or something there's two books a year like i think actually 1983 at the list i'm going off has there's some of three books a year crazy yeah likewise yeah 83 i'm getting christine pet cemetery cycle of the werewolf i mean wow what a prolific prolific time and as you read down that list some of his most well-known and best-loved books um Mm -hmm. all written under a huge mountain of cocaine unbelievable Mm -hmm. so (laughs) (laughs) right so listen let's start right at the first one that uh that that we've got which is which i believe is firestarter which is opening his 80s account yeah i really love this it's one of the ones that surprised me in my reread. I'd never re- reread it before since I was a teenager. So when I encountered it again, I just sort of fell in love with it. I think it's really good. I mean, there is very similar parallels in It and the Dead Zone between the Johnny uh, Johnny Smith and Sarah relationship to the Vicky and Andy relationship that's at the heart of Firestarter. But um, I just, I love it. I love, I love Charlie. I love the whole idea of like the shop being sort of, 
it's kind of almost King becoming. So you talked about Greg Stilson the last time being like a satirist, but the mm. way that he depicts the shop almost goes into comedy because they're so inept. They're rubbish, aren't they? They they're, really yeah. are. <laughs> they are rubbish, and like, but in such a sort of comedic way. Like, there's a bit with the agent who's like. He's experienced Charlie's power before, and when she breaks loose at the end of the book, he's like, "See you later." Is King just te- you know having fun with us? You know, is King indulging in comedy here? Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Which you know, there is again part of King's writing is that that comedy chops and the satire and the humor, and that really I think starts to come through. I mean, interesting. You know, he's taking as his main protagonist here again a girl that has these uh, you know. telepathic telekinetic powers which Mm -hmm. again he touched on of course in Carrie his first ever novel Mm -hmm. um and then we know appears again in the dead zone with Johnny to a degree these gifts it seems to be something he's drawn to right yeah he's like but he goes big here in a way he never has gone since or never done before and never gone since like Charlie is the most powerful character that he has ever created in terms of a child with special abilities. I mean, it's not just the fact that she's a fire starter. I think everyone forgets that she actually has other powers too. She also has telekinesis and a bit of telepathy. I mean, like she's a, there's a bit at the beginning of the book where she breaks into uh, telephones to get money out of them. And it's her telekinesis yeah. that she uses, not fire starting ability that does it. So there's sort of this, and there's a bit in the book at the very end where she looks at the sun and says, I'll be able to create something like that someday. You know, and that's sort of like, wow, you, but he sticks it. You know, I think it really works. He just goes all out and, um, it, it it works in a really unique way. And again, like Dead Zone, it feels not like a horror book. It feels like a suspense mm. book or on the run, you know? Yeah, right, right from the start, right? We hit the ground running right yeah. from the beginning, don't we, with, with with Charlie and her dad, you know, on the run from the shop. And again, a beautiful parent-child relationship that, that's mm. explored here at the heart of it, yeah? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it does have its um, faults, you know, its depiction of, you know, John, uh, is it John Rainbird? Who's the sort of yes. villain-esque is very complicated and, and sort of like what was done at the time, you know, where they're like, you know, if they're depicting a Native American, they have to be cool and they have to be this sort of killer sort of thing. And and that was being shown in cinema a lot, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it was inappropriate and things. And that's where you know, my, I, you know, I five, it's a four star read for me. And the five, the reason why it doesn't betray in that five star is because of that effect. But there is some really awful horror things that happens in it with like Andy's power with the ricocheting. Mm. If you remember, I don't know if you remember what he does to that character and he ends up like, he ends up like putting his hand into what is it a, a garbage disposal? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Re- really, one of his most graphic moments, and uh, and Charlie's mum as well. The way that her death is described. Oh yeah. I mean, because again, as you said, yeah, the shopper are inept, and um, there's almost a comedy element there. But again, it, it's so dark. I mean, I remember being. Um, disturbed and appalled um, by yeah. the way that you know Charlie's mum is killed and that family's ripped apart and mum's just stuffed, stuffed into some cupboard, you know, next to the ironing board or something like yeah. that. I mean, it just was such a almost the the kind of the disregard that the shop had for the human life, but the bravery of King as a writer to mm-hmm. not cushion uh this i uh, really really stuck in my in my heart that that description yeah 
No, I agree. It's a, it's a, you know, I think it's a, it's something that um, I would say it's a good book to read is one of his first ones, I think, mm-hmm. because it has the horror in it for, in that particular thing, but it's not com- throughout. It's not, you know, all in your face all the time. It shows his ability to write female characters. It shows his ability yeah. to write male characters. Yeah. Um, you know, just the, the John reimburse stuff is just difficult. Um, uh, so it is to read now, looking back on mm-hmm. with hindsight. Um, yeah absolutely and and um, i'll be fascinated to know as we go through if that is you know a, a particular 80s trend because we know when we go back and we look at films we look at comedy of the 80s mm-hmm. it's a period that is quite dicey on some grounds it was you know it's yeah. quite a bloated decade i remember it was the the decade that i was growing up in you know um mm-hmm. Well, you're talking about bloated decade. The publishing schedule of this man in the 80s, as we already discussed, is very bloated because, (laughs) you know, he just was going for it. You know, anything, any idea it seemed he has was a novel and, you know, thrown out, you know. I mean, I mean, unbelievable. And to, you know, I mean, we we hear of the writers, you know, such as Hemingway and Fitzgerald and, you know, Hemingway, you know, high-functioning alcoholic, able to write. And, you know, Hemingway has... uh, a lot of flaws as a man you know as we as we know in his misogyny and the way he writes and depicts women and a lot of people aren't fans of the writing but even the fact that he put books out under the influence of that king as we know i mean throughout the 80s there was a lot of coke going up (laughs) up his nostrils and drink and uh, you know anything you know anything really right yeah Yeah, he was even drinking what what a mouthwash because i had alcohol in it because he needed the hit or something you know like it's just it was yeah it's crazy and but like there's such experimenting in this in this decade for me that's why i refer it for me overall it's not as consistent as the 70s it's a mixed bag but you can definitely tell that he's branching out like the next book is roadwork which he published under richard backman it's not even a horror novel yeah now what's so i'm yeah i'm really fascinated to know your take on roadwork um well for one i don't like it yeah (laughs) what's that Uh, for one i don't like it (laughs) (laughs) you don't like it i i I just couldn't get it what yeah talk us through this exactly what is it's like what is the point but again there's poor marketing by this book because i think every cover i've ever seen it it depicts like this man having a standoff uh, you know um against the sort of the man or something like that and he's held up in his home with guns and stuff and it's this sort of shoot him kind of thing and that's not what that book about it's more a very very bleak kind of um um piece inside a man's head um that is very that's just apathetic i mean he doesn't do anything there's multiple chances that the main character has in road work to change his fate to benefit himself and i don't think king pulls off the kind of emotional weight of he doesn't want to move out of his home because his child lived there before his child dies that's the whole point he doesn't want to move he's been asked to relocate his entire neighborhood has in order to make way for this highway and um, he refuses to, based on the yeah. fact that his child lived in this home. But I, for me, I never felt like that was fully achieved. Um, the weight, that that emotional weight, to provide me with enough belief in this person. Um, yeah. And, uh, and it, I just it, find it boring. It's it, it was yeah. I mean, I, I I did the audiobook halfway, and there was no reflection on the guy reading it. But I just. I, I would just find myself very rare with a King book, just daydreaming uh, yeah. and thinking of like, what am I going to do for dinner tonight? Or, um, oh no, Aussie, don't eat that. <laughs> you know, rather than, yeah. 
being captured by it felt um if that had come out you know uh as a batman book i didn't know him as batman I wouldn't have said that was a King novel. It was almost uh, so experimental, right? It's so experimental. It's just so strange. Just, I don't know. It's just such a strange, unique book. And, you know, and it's interesting to read for that. Like the main protagonist, I forget his name, but he's like, he's not a nice guy. Like his inaction towards this thing causes him not only to, you know, cause such a resistance between his wife and she leaves him, but also he screws over every individual that he works with because he's a manager of some laundromat and he's (laughs) also having to move them out of the way and he chooses not to do anything. He just, it's a novel about inaction. You know, it's 250 pages or 300 pages of a man not doing anything and choosing not to do anything. And so there's no conflict there. There's no, so for that, it's a very, for me, I find very boring read. Mm. Um, so mm. again, that for me, that experiment didn't work. But the next one did, uh, well, the next two did. The next one that's out is Dance Macabre. And I think yeah. that goes to the thing like that's that's a, that's a collection of him talking about the horror genre as itself. And it, I can't believe it's so early in his career. I feel like 1981, he'd, you know, he's nine books, 10 books. Mm. And yet he's still, he's then now considered enough that a publisher is able to, you know, want to publish this, you know, your thoughts are worthy enough to be considered to talk about this nonfiction book about the horror genre, because that's how much of an impact you've made. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. So, so it's, it's his first nonfiction book, right? Or his first mm. published nonfiction book. Yeah. Yeah. So a series of essays studying the genre and uh, it's his love letter, I guess, to, to to horror, right? Yeah, it goes into radio and book and books, movies and and TV, and he gives mm-hmm. a list of things to see. And it's like it's anyone who wants to know what that like at the time from the eighties beyond wants to read and have a massive list of of stuff to consume that influenced King, but also he believes influences the genre. Certainly, is definitely yeah. worth reading, and it's interesting to know his thoughts on it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, interestingly enough, his editor, <clears throat> Bill Thompson, uh, was the inspiration, King says, for for it, for the creation. Because King said, oh, Bill called me and said, why don't you do a book about the entire horror phenomenon as you mm. see it? Books, movies, radio, TV, the whole thing. We'll do it together if you want. Uh, the concept intrigued and frightened me at the same time. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, you know, again, Bill Thompson said, look, if you do this book, then you won't have to answer all these tedious, repetitive <laughs> interview questions about horror just get in front of it get it out there so everyone knows your thoughts and hopefully then everyone will stop asking you the same question where do you get your ideas from did you have a difficult childhood so i love that it's um and i get the sense of dance with carb it's also king kind of you know uh sticking two fingers up to you know uh, academia almost he's like look yeah I'm going to write a whole tome and essays about this genre that so many people are sniffy about Uh, yeah and it, it, he sticks a landing with most of it. And it, again, there's some, I think one of the success of Stephen King is the fact that his writing style is like sitting around a campfire and having someone tell a tale. It's sort of a cosy seduction, even though the things he's telling can be horrific. And mm-hmm. this book, because it's nonfiction, you directly feel like he's having a conversation with you about the horror genre. It's easy. It's simple. It's relaxed. It's really enjoyable to read. It's not, it's dense, but he makes it fun. He makes it enjoyable. So, <laughs> I, I really love it. I so I do. 
Yeah, and it's fascinating, isn't it, Jamie? Because it gives us a real insight into um, King's, what makes King tick, you know? Yeah. Again, we get it later on in his career with on writing. Mm-hmm. But I, I love how he um, classifies the genre in, in Dance Macabre. So he yes. talks about, you know, terror, horror and revulsion. Mm-hmm. And he says, um, I recognise terror as the finest emotion. And so I'll try to terrorise the reader. But... Mm-hmm. If I find that I cannot terrify, I'll try to horrify. And if I find that I can't horrify, I'll go for gross out. I'm not yeah. proud. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And terror for him is that finest element that, you know, the suspenseful moment in horror before the monster's revealed. And then yeah. horror is the moment when you, you 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 see the creature or the aberration. And then revulsion is the, the gag reflex, as he describes it. So. Yeah fascinating these layers and ties back into what you were saying which is you know he's a you know he's going for suspense terror really he's going for a suspense writing which we start to see right from the beginning of his works right yeah and you can also sort of that he also talks about the architects of horror in terms of like the monsters the movie monsters inside this book and that's sort of what led me to have the opinion of his 70s books as having these architects because you know he's clever enough to know the archetypes within the genre and maybe that that's what led me to base my my kind of um opinions on those 70s books as being you know taking certain archetypes and turning taking his own spin now in the books that are coming out now you can't really go to Cujo and what what is the archetype yet there? Mm, you know, mm. Cujo was this book about a St. Bernard that's got theories, but the thing about it is Cujo gets forgotten about. It's only remembered as being that as a book, the dog with, Saint, uh, with rabies, the St. Bernard with rabies. But if you read that book, say if you try to get this book published and you'd be like, this is a horror novel, Cujo doesn't turn bad and start killing people till 180 pages into this book. This isn't yeah. a horror novel, but yet it's it's a first Castle Rock. Well, it's not. It's the second Castle Rock book. So again, you're talking about expanding the fictional universe, which no one else was doing back then except for in comics, mm-hmm. you know, not in literature. <clears throat> and uh, so you have this book about a St. Bernard that has rabies, but it's not. It's about this family, you know, Donna, Tad, and her husband, and and then this other family that are like, you know, Donna and Tad and her husband are middle class and then they have a lower class family. And it's this sort of like social classism book about, you know, the stresses of, you know, each person and how they're experiencing their life. There isn't, there is, it's very anticlimactic ending, if you think about it, between the fact that her husband discovers she's having this affair and, you know, anyone else, any film at the time, any other book at the time would have that confrontation between husband and lover. Doesn't happen. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. And you're mentioning, obviously, you know, the the links there to the dead zone, because, uh, again, we, you know, Frank Dodd, of course, is referred to quite a bit throughout the story and and almost the monster in the closet. You know, the yeah. idea of is somehow there. I know there's a hypothesis that actually it's the spirit of Frank Dodd that, you know, kind of descends upon Kuja and descends upon Castle Rock. And Do of course, you ever think that? Do you ever feel that when I, you read that book that I, is Frank no, Dodd? I, I know. I never got that. I yeah, was just, me yeah, either. I, I never <laughs> had that. I just was like, Cujo, rabid bat, that's it, you know. Yeah. Um, I didn't get that at all. But of course, George Bannerman makes, uh, you know. Uh, yeah. 
an appearance. And again, we've met George Bannerman, of course, as the, you know, when he was a, a, in the dead zone, you yeah. know, uh, working alongside Johnny to, to, to catch, you know, the Castle Rock Strangler. Yeah. And it's yeah pretty intense what happens to him. So yeah. is, is this, you know, so Castle Rock, you know, for, for, for some people that might not have read any of the Castle Rock books, what, what does Castle Rock mean for King? Well, Castle Rock is sort of the unifying, it's a sort of an ability to unify stories and to let the readers know this is all connected. You know, he's always had wee things, like I think in Salem's Lot, it mentions the town Chamberlain, which carries in. But this is like, oh, this is not just mentioned, this is in the same place. And a lot of writers were doing this at the time, like Charles L. Grant, who I'm a big fan of, um, had a town called Oxford, um, Oxron Station, where creepy things would just happen in it that would go unexplained. <laughs> and it was kind of this sort of, again, this universally connecting device. But Castle Rock and other towns that really King goes on to create um, are really unique in that they they have personalities on their own, you know? Um, and Castle Rock is just mm-hmm. like a small wee quaint farming, well, not even farming, it's just a small wee town that mm-hmm. um, it sort of mentioned that Johnny lives there in Dead Zone. But in this, this feels like the first real Castle Rock book because it's solely set there. Yeah. The lives of people in it. And, and no. interesting, yeah, interesting how, you know, this is that book where King's revealed it was the what if, you know, where it was inspired by, you know, and he was having to go and see a mechanic himself in the outskirts of Maine and his motorbike died. And, you know, this massive St. Bernard came from growling from the garage. And, uh, you know, that got him thinking, my God, what if, what if? Um, yeah. And now we have, I mean, everybody, Cujo is synonymous, whether it, people, you, people have, read a single word of Stephen King mm. everyone knows Cujo's become part of our culture right and pop culture you yeah. know yeah. if you saw a tiny little tiny little dog and it was called Cujo everyone would get the joke everyone would yeah. know uh but that's again it's this it's the it's the perception of the book the actual reality of the book you know and Cujo is a good dog yeah, you know, oh. Kuju is actually a good dog. He's not an evil dog at all. You know, he's just infected with an awful disease that oh. causes him to go rampant. Yeah, and uh, yeah. So and yeah. So I find that very interesting. You know, it's an experimental book in itself because yes, there's horrible things that are happening to it, but the whole the majority of the pages within it are more about life in a small town in the Absolutely. same way that Ed Zone isn't really a horror novel mm. about a man with powers, you know? No, absolutely. And, and it is, I remember when we, we did the episode on, on King Size on Cujo and uh, both of us were pretty choked up, me and Simon at one stage, because it's such a heartbreaking book. And I remember yeah. Simon saying, you know, this book broke his heart, uh, you know, because King, I mean, my God, the skills that he has as a writer, he takes us into mm. Cujo's head. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we see the world from Cujo's eyes and as Cujo deteriorates, and the rabies starts to take over it is utterly utterly mm. heartbreaking yeah. um and, and that for me is why it it's yeah as you say it, it's it's similar to jaws right okay you know we get, we get, he keeps the 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 shark out of the main shot right till the yeah halfway mm. point midway through to the mm. very end because you know that's just the um 
the final level of the horror, isn't it? It's much more psychological. And he has huge passages where we're talking about serial commercials and a serial marketing campaign. And I found myself really getting into that. And Mm -hmm. it's almost King slowing us down, going, no, no, no. Now we all know that with every turn of the page, every minute passes, Cujo is getting more and more rabid. It's going to happen. But in the meantime, hold your horses. Let's go into a marketing campaign to try and see. <laughs> well, it's sort of the concept of like these people are middle class people, and this is this is the danger. This is that their middle class, you know, existence is threatened. This is where they feel the threat is coming from. This sort of. But at the end of the day, if they lost their you know advertising deal, what would really happen to them? They'd get yeah. another one. They'd find work elsewhere. Maybe mm. at, at the worst case scenario, they might lose their jobs and have to work elsewhere. That's the worst case scenario. Then the actual, the actual real danger is, oh no, you're going to fucking die. Yeah. And you're you're in a car, you know, and you might not even die from the dog. You might just die from the heat. You're just going to die from the elements. Mm. You're going to die from that primal kind of thing that we sort of, as an in modern society feel that we are, we don't exist anymore because we're so cultured and cultivated and safe in our wee homes that we've protected. No, the car that you've built has failed. Yeah, it's, in a, it's it's become an oven. It is now killing you. This thing of protection, while at the same time the man's friend, you know, the dog is going to is now a rapid animal, uh, in the same way it probably would have been hundreds of years ago in the wild, and it yeah. is hunting you. And yeah, as you said in The Shining, you know, everything gets stripped back, and we are just stuck in this very isolated uh, place. You know, trapped with these characters who are trapped with with the demons and the ghosts. There, here again, there's elements of that, right? You know, yeah. where we just everything strips away, and it's Donna and Tad stuck in this car that is, as you say, slowly killing them. Yeah, um, Donna's amazing. Donna is an amazing oh. character, and I think as a reader, you go on a journey with her. I think, yeah. you know, there's a resentment that you initially feel for her because of the fact that she's cheating on her husband, mm. and it could be conceived as cheat. Why? You know, you have this p- fantastic life. You don't have to work. You don't have to slave. You've got everything you could possibly want. You know, you know, you know, what realistically want, and you're having this affair and betraying this person's trust who loves you. And then mm. you understand why you go through the headspace of her and then she becomes this sort of hero. Like the one thing yeah. I always remember is her stepping out of the car and throwing the stones over the bonnet to see if the dog's in front of the bonnet and the dog is oh. there and it pretends not to move or doesn't move. It is, She's it, so is, brave. it is astonishing piece of writing. I mean, the whole section of from when they're, when they're trapped in the car Mm-hmm. The way King writes the details, and in particular that moment you referenced there, Jamie, where she throws the stones and waiting to hear the sound of the stones hit the gravel, and then that stone that doesn't hit the gravel because yeah. you know, and Cujo, who you know, just talk when we are inside Cujo's head, it's man, it's woman, how he thinks, how he yeah. relates. Um what do you hold the hypothesis that again Cujo can be viewed um as a whole you know analogy metaphor for addiction um I've never know. got that I'm sorry mm. I just I never I've never yeah. I couldn't see that in in that book you know it's you know I just look at it as how literally it is you know a dog that's been affected by rabies I can't I don't know just every time I've read it I've not been able to go deeper and yeah. see anything 
other than that have you um i, I haven't no but it's fascinating I'm re- I, I, what i love about king is that there are all these multitude of reads that people can have with king i really firmly believe that his books are so rich that actually you get what you bring to, to it as well mm-hmm. and i Sorry, yeah, sorry. No, and with that, I, I think when I've heard people talk about how they view Cujo as you know, kind of the amalgamation of addiction mm-hmm. and the destruction of you know uh, something that's really good and pure, and the loss and untethering, mm-hmm. and and the and the lashings out to those that you love and hold dearest. I find it a really fascinating read. I don't get that, um, but then maybe I haven't lived that. So I, yeah. I, I would feel less connected to it, but I love the the the, the reads that one can put upon King's novels because they're strong enough to go. Yeah, all all reads here are welcome. You know. Yeah, I like. Uh, I I really find it fascinating that it begins like a fable. It's like the beginning line is like once upon a time, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And that's like a false sense of of security you go into mm. because you think, well, it's like a fairy tale, so it's all going to work out in the end. Yeah, and it doesn't. <laughs> And it really does. It's a it's a proper proper dark fairy tale, well, as fairy tales are, as we know and uh, yeah. discovering at the moment again. Um, but yeah, Cujo, the book that King has openly, you know, famous soundbite said he can't even remember writing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and it's sort of it's a new because it doesn't have chapters. Sure, it doesn't. It just goes. Mm. It's like it's sort of just it's just it's a bit like a Terry Pratchett book where it just has scene separations, but it doesn't have actual there's nothing in it that's like it just hits you like a brick. Yeah, absolutely. And that was his intention, right? He wanted it to feel like a brick being thrown through a window. Yeah. Um, It's yeah, for me, it's one of his standout, standout books. Um, Um, I find it really interesting because the next book he wrote or published was The Running Man, which has which is so separated. Like every single scene is like a countdown towards the end of The Running Man, like compared to Cujo, which is just all one connective narrative. Mm. This is sort of split by these countdown segments. Mm. Uh, and again, like, right, so we've got this story set in Maine, which is his home. And, you know, it's a horror story set there, potentially a horror story, but it's also this sort of look at, you know, life uh, and, you know, married life and modern day life. And then you jump to this sci-fi futuristic world where it's much like the long walk where there's a game show where it has people hunting to kill you you know uh, mm. just sort of completely different direction to go in and i will say the first mention of the town dairy it's dystopian right so we go straight from cujo mm-hmm. uh, which felt very grounded of that time um mm. into this dystopian thriller you know, yeah. straightforward for 2025 which you know again yeah. we're thinking well we're knocking on the door of that in a couple of years and uh, mm. You know, always finding God when books are set that far in the future of the time. We're going, my God, that makes me feel really old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. We're in a pretty so. bad state worldwide at the moment, I would say. Look at what's going on with, you know, our politics and, you know, Italy far right going in Putin. I mean, I'm like, oh, God, it's not far off, right? <laughs> no, well, yeah. It's interesting when, you know, you read these books and it's in game and this where, like, the technology and how it's depicted. So what is it like? He has a camera that is allows him to record, you know, material, and then he has to post it in. You know, there is no like we would just stream that. You know, it's like you know, you know, it's funny to see these sort of like this is going to be the leap in technology that King thought was going to be there, and it's like oh, actually, 
Mate, we're far, we're far past that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. It's it's not my favorite read, but there is some interesting situ- like the the bit in the pipeline where he's like he's in a boarding house, which he's set on fire, and he's crawling through a sewer system. Yeah, um, to escape, you know, and it's very claustrophobic and stuff. There is some great situations in it. Yeah, um, and echoes of and little foreshadowings of you know when we'd meet another character crawling through the sewer for escape. He he, yes. he does like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's coming up. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, coming. exactly. And on the, on the Running Man, Jamie. I mean, you know, I, I'm I think I'm right in saying that it was he wrote it within a week. Yeah. Um, and you know, you know, normally, you know, he has 10 pages as he says his daily output, mm. this one pff, just burnt through it in a week. And as you said, right coming straight after Cujo, no chapters running man, 101 chapters countdown. Mm. I love it. He's just going, right. I'm trying all these different styles. I'm yeah. even the right. So the writing style changing the, the genre, like it's, it's sci-fi it's dystopian. Mm. It's like, you know, again, it's this sort of, you can't, you wouldn't say that the person that wrote Salem's Lot, you know, which is this sort of modern day telling of Dracula can link him to the running man at, you know, in the seventies, you wouldn't think, oh, he's going to write the running man or a story like that one day, you know, so it's so different to anything that's come before. Yes. Obviously the long walk is there, but the long walk again, it, it doesn't encompass the world. It's more, you know, the, the, it's more like a dystopian world, but it isn't. It doesn't have any of the technologies that are present in the Running Man or anything mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just, I mean, you know, it's a really fast-paced, you know, read that you can just get through in a day, really, can't you? Yeah, and and that's that thing, isn't it? it again, the the scope and the size of the King novels, uh, yeah. uh, just constantly keeping us on our toes. There's so much to offer, isn't there? From those quick, short, sharp reads as the way they were written to those much longer, immersive uh, reads there. But this is where he's getting away from the short st- storytelling, I think. You know, like Cujo is not a short story. Yeah. Uh, it is not using those short story talents to tell that story. It is, you know, a novel and it, it and it doesn't have those, you know, it's it just it, there's a difference here. There's there's less of the vignettes and more of a connective thing that everything mm. connects. Mm. So it yeah. is in, in these stories that are being released in this decade in the 80s. And I wonder if that's because, again, yeah, he's just much more comfortable with that style. He's, you know, he's entered that territory of being comfortable with a bigger, higher word count and what that feels like, the novel territory, right? Yeah. Well, there you go. The next one is The Gunslinger. And, like, yes. who would have thought, like, that's completely... <laughs> I'm just... What's your next horror novel? Oh, it's going to be a Western um, that's inspired by Lord of the Rings and also, you know, The Good, Bad, The Ugly. And it's also going to have some horror in it and some zombie sort of slow movements in it. <laughs> you know like so different so different and again it, it's it's well it's it is very built on a short story system you know each chapter is its own wee thing i think that's what he originally because he didn't yeah. know what he was doing he didn't have an end game plan so he's just writing it out and you know it's, i think it's five chapters or maybe it's six and each one is its own story yeah itself. yeah Absolutely right, Jamie. Yeah, the the five stories, and originally it was published in the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. And so, you know, we have The Gunslinger, The Way Station, The Oracle and the Mountains, The Slow Mutants, The Gunslinger and The Dark Man. These five, you know, stories, um, almost in a way kind of foreshadowing that that sense of the Green Mile, the Dickens thing of, you know, releasing each one. Yeah, but there was... A couple of years, but you know, between the Gunslinger uh, and the Way Station being released in this magazine of fantasy and science fiction, mm-hmm. and then the last three came in the same year. So, 
you know, just it felt again experimental, right? We go from dystopian future to a, to this Western. Mm-hmm. Now, how you know are you going to save your, your your star rating for the for the end of the episode? Um, you know, when we look back on 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 this decade, but the Gunslinger, it's safe to say, many people find it quite problematic. Um, as a read, a difficult read, a difficult yeah. entry into the Dark Tower yeah. Odyssey, which yeah. is the heart, I think, of all of King's writing. Yeah. How does it sit for you? Um, you I, I, I echo those thoughts, and I find it still <laughs> a, a difficult. It just it comes across as he doesn't know where he's going, so there is sort of like uh, not insecurity, but an unstable there. You're just sort of like, right, what am I doing? What am I reading? What, mm. where am I going where where am I going on this journey sort of thing and you know we have Randall Flagg in it but originally that's not Randall Flagg so um, there is that kind of disconnect because it doesn't feel like the Randall Flagg we've been introduced to in the stand mm. um, this this does here in the Gunslinger even though the re-edited version refers to him as Randall Flagg it feels like a completely different character because um, you know it's or at least it feels like a more lived character because I think in the stand Randall Flagg has no memory of who he is every time he appears yeah I, I find it fascinating because you know uh, there's a big school of thought for saying look actually the drawing of the three start with that start your yeah. Dark Tower Odyssey with that um, and then move forward or do that and then go back and do the Gunslinger I had to have a couple of run throughs with the Gunslinger I, I had a did not finish first time round and I was like no 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 come on I've got to mm-hmm. I've got to get to it come on I've, I, I, I can I can read this um, yeah I'm hugely glad I did, obviously, but it is, um, again, I wouldn't recognize it as King. Um, if, if, you know, you put that next to, which just shows how, you know, the variety of his writing, but I wouldn't recognize the writing style with it. Yeah. The the gunslinger series itself feels like there is a different, like kind of writing he's done. And it's not like, he's like switched off and switched on to another outlet. And even like the sentence structure and the way he words things, it's mm. just completely different. There's a lot, it's just, you know, it's it's not what you know as King being. And um, so it's, it's, and again, like an interesting experiment um, because I think and if you'd read that, just the gunslinger and thought, well, I don't think this is going to be the big thing that it later became. You know, I don't think it has that potential. You know, yeah. out of all the stories he's written, probably would have thought The Stand, because The Stand ends with the potential of a sequel, obviously. Yes. You know, with Randall Flagg, you know, arriving yeah. on an island or whatever it is, it's yeah. that small coda. Mm-hmm. So you sort of, it's very interesting, you know, what idea, it just you, you sort of like, he had a bag full of marbles and he was choosing what marble to come out next to, to the public <laughs> sort of thing. And each one, you know, shines in a certain degree, a certain way. Yeah. And, and that's, so that's our first, you know, gateway to, to the Dark Tower. How big a part of King's world and his writing does the Dark Tower hold for you? I'm always excited when I hear about stories about the Dark Tower, or Dark Tower adjacent, like the Talisman. They always intrigue me. And there's all these theories that it's linked in some way to like, you know, the, the Talisman and the ter- ter- territories and things like that. And those always intrigue me. But um, I haven't read them all now, or at least read them all, but fairy tale and stuff. Um, they don't sit very high on my thing. I find them very problematic. It's, it's you know, and I'm not one of these people that's like, why go to King for this one thing? You know, yeah. one of my favorite books is Juma Key, you know, which is a later book and we'll get mm-hmm. to that at a different point, but I love yeah. that for different reasons. I love him doing different things, but just for me, the Dark Tower books as it is, mm-hmm. you know, I always, I'm, I'm a very, um, 
I want to be able to picture the world around me when I read a book. And I find in the Dark Tower series, I can't. You know, mm. all the other descriptions in his other books set in our world are very much I can connect to because I can picture that world. But mm. because the fantasy world of the Dark Tower just for me is not described mm. in any way that I can picture. So I struggle with that. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's such a it's such an intriguing book, and yeah, you know, for such a slim book, on some way, it's just got, it's got such a he- big, heavy, weighty reputation. Yeah. Um, and we go from the gunslinger then to Christine, I believe. Yeah, different seasons. Oh, is it different seasons? There, oh, oh yes, right. don't forget that. To, talk- this is his argument against all those critics just said him he is a horror writer. Like this is oh yeah. Well, you've got the four novellas. It's of a novella collection, which I don't think was ever done before to, mm. you know, to say it, certainly not to the same success. And you have Shawshank. Um, we have Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. Or, yeah. And then you have um, Apt Pupil, The Body, later known as Stand By Me from the film. And then um, The Breathing Method. And, you know, four stories, four seasons, each one sort of, connecting to a season in some way either by setting or by sort of theme and um it's just sort of mind-blowing like just sort of like very little horror here um like you know Shawshank at the beginning it's 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 a tale of hope and it's a tale of redemption it's about a man who's an innocent man who's wrongly imprisoned yet it's set in his universe it's set in a prison beside Castle Rock it's you know so it's in King's universe but it's just it's it's without any supernatural elements. It's mostly it's one of the most mainstream fiction literature pieces mm-hmm. he's ever done. Mm-hmm. And then you've got App Pupil, which is about which is very sort of the boys from Brazil. It's about a young boy who disca- discovers that one of his neighbors is a, is a former Nazi who's you know hiding under a different persona. And that's the thing though in different seasons that I think that's long enough on its own to be a book. Yeah. <laughs> it's long enough to be considered a novel in its own right absolutely my favorite is the body yeah. you have the body and it's 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 almost like a, a training bit for king for it you know he, <sighs> he, he writes about children he's always had childhood characters you know talking about mark petrie from salem's lot and they've always shined in his books charlie Car- carrie but mm. this is one where there is no adults it's just the four boys um, with the, that are you know, four boys going to see a dead body of another kid, and it's about kids, and it's about growing up, and in the time period that they grew up in the fifties, mm. and what it led them to be as men, and um, it's just so um, heart wrenching. Mm. Mm. And and then you've got the breathing method, which is sort of like a Dickens tale or King yeah. or Dickens yeah. or like um, Peter Strap sort of story, mm. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah. And they're all phenomenal. And again, you would recommend this to anyone as their first read of him. Yeah. Or anyone I, who says he just does horror. I, I think that's, yeah, I think that's a really good call. I mean, for me, of the, you know, collections, different seasons is one I would happily just easily recommend. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it, it yeah, most people have seen Shawshank. But the, what struck me on the reread was that, all of that wonderful dialogue, those wonderful descriptions, they're there in the novel, you know? Mm-hmm. 
again, we know that Darabont in particular, if anyone's going to be able to put uh, King on screen successfully and with the soul of, of King and the heart of King, it's him because he sticks to the source material. And it's so beautifully, beautifully written. And, and the audiobook of that, uh, of different seasons, which Frank Muller narrates, is really astonishing as well. And I love the subtitles, um, Jamie, that they have for this. You know, Rita Hayworth is Hope Springs Eternal, yeah. Apt Pupil, The Summer of Corruption, The Body, Fall from Innocence, and then The Breathing Method, A Winter's Tale. Yeah. And they each have that, that almost that, um, that synesthesia of you know that the, the the different heat and the different temperatures when you're reading it. Yeah, the fall from innocence for me for uh, the body is these boys learning that they're not immortal. Yeah, that they will become not pet their parents, but some some version of it, and and they're in this sort of limbo of childhood that they that keeps them exempt from adulthood at that point, mm-hmm. and, they, and they're sort mm-hmm. of so distant from it, and it's it's so strangely torturous and and hap- and and joyful to sort of enjoy their journey yeah uh, even though it's so despairing for some of them yeah uh, very much and and you know as we're looking there at this list in the 80s uh you know from the last couple running man the dark tower so again dystopian western and then we get these four if you like straight novellas um yeah like not nothing you can't Nothing like anything that's in the 70s area. No, no. I mean, everything is grounded in... There, there's nothing... The horrors are, uh, are real, aren't there? There's nothing really supernatural, maybe a little bit towards with the breathing method. But uh, again, as you say, it has that lovely Dickensian feel to it. But uh, mm. again, it's very much tethered to the real world. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, no, um, yeah just that that's a knock out of the park for me for from from those books and the fact that he wrote these novellas i think like the body was written after salem's law like he wrote this entire book and he, he said i have enough steam i put out an 80 to 100 page novella done <laughs> <laughs> ridiculous just, just insane just insane, yeah. insane. But yeah, I think I agree with you. I think different seasons is a really good gateway in um, yeah. for, for for King uh, mm-hmm. for new King readers uh, mm-hmm. for sure. Next one up's Christine. Yes, my uh, first um, king. Your first king. My first king. Yeah, the very um, first king I got. Uh, again, in my head, I'm like, oh wow, look, this car looks really cool, and mm-hmm. you know, it's the story of this killer car, this horror car, and of course, as with all King books, you read it, you go, oh. That is an element, but it's so much more than that. Um, yeah. So Arnie and Dennis and their relationship is just so beautiful. And I think you know, if it was written in modern day times, certainly they would they would be the love affair in the book. And they kind of are. They're these two young men who are on the cusp of going into adulthood, whether that's into college or into employment. And as I've said before in your previous episode, we did. There's no other King book I think where he has that, where he talks about these two people on that verge of adulthood in that way you know we get people in their 20s that are in college we get people that are preteen, but this is the only one where they're at this age where and it's this sort of safety net that's being removed from both of them and one of them is sort of taken in their stride and it's surprisingly not the person you thought it would be it's arnie with this Mm. car and he's got this new attitude and this cool sort of like way about himself and dennis who's this football star who you expect to be you know this cool cat this cool guy is sort of like he's had an injury and it sort of knocked him back and he's sort of 
there's a lot of um, there's a lot of fear in Dennis about where he will end up in the future. Yeah, and it's also this relationship about parents and children and these types of parents that are controlling. And again, again, we get the controlling, the overbearing mother in this with Arnie and his mum um to a certain degree and god you know i love to hate them you know i I, as someone who went through you know rebellion in his teenage years against the adults (laughs) uh, this book is for you you know (laughs) absolutely and he's using again that thing of uh, you know taking you know here it's a car you know in in cujo it's the dog there's just this centerpiece isn't there of Mm. um, the the deaths are so cruel or so brilliantly written yeah, yeah, yeah. C- complete, and and it, it's amazing, isn't it? Because Christine's almost, you know, uh, the car's merely almost a side plot, right? Yeah, it's it's as you said, it's about the disillusion of uh, of friendships, mm-hmm. and Christine represents here for me much clearer than you know, maybe what Kuja represents. Christine does represent, you know, anger that that teenage angst that we've all been through, right? Mm-hmm. You know, love, sex, uh, you know, what's forbidden what's hoped yeah. for this getting a really... bit of independence having a bit of choice in your life yeah you from the safety net of everything is cho- chosen for you and unfortunately arnie and his parents have allowed that relationship to continue on but they choose his entirety of anything yeah. he does and the fact that he's rebelling against it in any way because he doesn't begin in a big way it's simple small rebellions before he yeah. gets like completely taken over and becomes sort of the person he becomes and um so it's just, I, I love it for that. I love it for the relationship between Dennis and Arnie. And I hear they're doing a remake and I hope they have sort of a, a, a relationship between Dennis and Arnie that has a bit more of the sort of physical love between the two because I think well, well, that I would think, be really good. For, yeah, I, I think they will because Brian Fuller's um, directing it and I know I've heard him talk really beautifully specifically about that and about his take on Christine. So mm-hmm. I, I think that will very much be there. Um, for for sure again interestingly Jamie you know that strikes me as potentially one that might feel a very different when you read it as a as a young reader to then a reread later on in life yeah and it's probably the one so far so out of all the 80s books we've covered it's probably the one so far that feels most in the horror genre yeah even though it is experimenting with the fact that oh, it's a car it's haunted it's not a place it's not Mm -hmm. you know it still feels that that's probably the closest to, but that's saying something that we've come so far in the 80s there's been so many books released so far that aren't anything like we've known the next one cycle of the werewolf yeah which yes that's completely within the horror genre you could say but not the way it's done not like this with these 500 to 1000 word vignettes uh you know with that match up with the every individual month of the year when the werewolf attacks i would love to write a story like this i think it's so d- well done we know with the fact that you know the werewolf is based on the fact that it comes out every full moon but as a novel it wouldn't work but in because it would be too lengthy but in this form it just works so well i think it's fantastic it's really beautiful and and the illustrations with it are are wonderful always that that link there you know that king's king's writing is so visual uh, i find that it's wonderful when it just you know when it links up with those gorgeous illustrations as well and and again what a great format again we've seen no chapters to 101 countdown chapters to each month of the year being a chapter uh yeah 
again, just it's almost like he's going all of these different formats. Yeah, let me let give it to me. I've got this. I can show yeah, you. Let me experiment. Let's, yeah. Let's play with this thing, you know. And I suppose, you know, werewolf story, you can only do so many things with a werewolf story, you know. Mm-hmm. So he just completely just does something, you know, it just does it in such a unique way that it's like no other werewolf story, but yet it is very classically a werewolf story. Yeah. And also it the villain in it who you never find out who bit, you know, all of our stories are, oh, I was bitten. And then I became yes. a werewolf. Yeah. That's not in this piece. It's just, oh, I'm now a werewolf. I'm just a werewolf. Yeah. You know, yeah. it just, I just changed. And, you know, and it's just, I, I love it for that. I love it for the simplicity of that. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's, you know, we've got that. And then alongside it in the same year, right, we mm-hmm. get possibly one of you know the books that is yeah most clearly for some people yeah his horror masterpiece pet cemetery yeah yeah uh it's absolutely a, a terrifying book um yeah uh, i mean as i've already said in the previous podcast we did about this in the 70s when i mentioned how scary this is mm. um it is it scared the crap out of me you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> um what was but, it specifically for you um having reread it again i understand i look at the book now as the destruction of a nuclear family um mm-hmm. this family moved from chicago to me and their family of four they've got you know a young son and a young daughter and they are like ha- like the first 150 pages is just them living out their ha- their family life in this mm-hmm. new place they have you know this loving relationship between um the husband lou and and the wife and and you know a very loving relationship and but they have this there's a there's a chink in the armor of the family and that's this the 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 thought of death the thought of dying and stuff and it's this this quite this teaching moment that all parents have to come to where they have to talk to their children about you know that eventuality that some you know at some point we all depart this plane and you know the wife the mother in this relationship sorry i can't remember her name but um mrs creed um she's doesn't want that to happen she's afraid of the subject you know she experienced it yeah. when she was at a very young age and she's been traumatized from it with her sister zelda uh and um and it leads this sort of this sort of father who is a doctor and again it's a bit like kujo in that you know where i talked about the the, the sort of this Lou feels like he dominates death because he's a doctor mm. he feels like he understands it to more than anyone else does there's a sort of confidence and sort of ego to mm. him about the fact that I can explain this to my daughter you know I can handle death death's going to happen to us I can be really pragmatic about it then mm. a son dies and suddenly Lou is not pragmatic in any way suddenly Lou is just like unhinged yeah and uh, 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 yeah. again when 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 his son dies and <laughs> You know, echoes there of you know what happens within you know some of his other eighties work. You know when you know we see in Cujo what happens there. Again, King's not afraid to go there. No, uh, no. To, to write about you know the the, the loss of uh, of children um, yeah. and, and the deaths the, of children. The slow writing of it, like you talk, he really doesn't shy. He is descriptive, like the bit where you know Lou digs up his son's body. Yeah. And he talks in detail. There again, I don't think that passage, that section has any breaks. He does not relent. And I just remembered just reading that that for that portion for me feels like one, it's a masterful written piece, but it is so tension wrapped. And you talked about Dance Maccabi goes for terror. That's total terror there yeah. in that book. Um 
Well, sure, he was so terrified he didn't want to publish it himself. Right, absolutely. And interestingly enough, there's a link to the horror short story by W.W. W. Jacobs, The Monkey's Paw, mm-hmm. which I know directly inspired Pet Cemetery, And he's referred to in a few of the novels. I think he gets referred to briefly in The Dead Zone mm-hmm. um, and also The Breathing Method, you know, that short story that's based on uh, this couple that, uh, you know, wish for uh, 200 pounds, uh, that then they can make the final mortgage payment for their house um and that night somebody comes to their home and says look i'm sorry your your son's been killed in a terrible machine accident um and so here's a goodwill payment of 200 pounds that's the amount that they wished for and she's then like mad with grief and insists that he uses uh, the husband uses this monkey's paw that can grant them these wishes to bring their son back to life um and Exactly. And he, you know, and he does so reluctantly, despite thinking, oh my God, I'm going to summon my son's dead body back to life. And then there's a knock at the door and the wife goes to open the door. Um, and then he makes his third and final wish and the knocking stops and she opens the door and no one's there. And it is effectively that saying, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. Comes yeah. from there. But also, Aside from the horror and, as you say, the really delicious, slow horror writing, King really rolls up his sleeves and spends time there. It speaks to me, Pet Cemetery, about what are the lengths that you would go to, yeah, yeah. To, to bring back your flesh and blood, your child the, from from beyond, you know. it's um, Or to see them from pain. Like, that's where it initially starts with the... The, yeah. the death of church where he takes the church to pet the the, the ellie's cat which he mm. takes to pet cemetery to revive her because he can't tell ellie the story you know he can't tell the truth and he saves her from hurt yeah. uh to a certain degree and you know the cat comes back changed I, and I, uh yeah the intentions are there aren't they exactly as you say you've mentioned a few times you know these noble characters Mm -hmm. and i think king deals with that everyday nobility you know good people put in extraordinary circumstances and forced to 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 take these turns um Mm -hmm. but isn't it fascinating jamie it is especially in the 80s you know from charlie's dad doing everything to protect her Donna to protect Tad from a rabid dog, yeah. you know, in Pet Cemetery, the lengths. It, it, it's, I guess, uh, love at its purest, bravest, most selfless, you know. Yeah. And King writes about that so, so powerfully. But also, the unique thing about Pet Cemetery is despite the fact of its length, despite the fact that he indulges in talking about the destruction of this family through you know their own matters and their own you know their own actions the story is not over Mm. the book ends but you as the reader know the story is still continuing it ends with lou's wife grabbing his shoulder from behind after she has been resurrected in pet cemetery but you don't know you know what happens after that but the story is continuing you're left to your imagination to know that and the fact that that's such a ballsy move, you know, that is such a fantastic, you know, ending to a book, whereas a lot of writers would have just continued on, but no, it's, and, and I remember just like closing that and being just all goose flesh, you know. <laughs> yeah. It feels like that would be the one if someone said, okay, point me to one where I just get 
King at his scariest. Yeah, it is. And it's such a bleak book as well for that. I know there is a sort of bleak thread for me. It's very dark. I can understand why he was afraid of it. You know, why he put it in that in that uh, drawer and didn't come out for a while. Mm, mm, uh, mm. It's amazing that he seems very self-aware in that respect i mean he's stating the bloody yeah. bleeding obvious i know but you know as a writer it feels like you know he's often gone on record to say 11 63 i could have written that in the 70s but i wasn't ready to yeah. and it feels like he knows when he's able to you know have the uh ability to get what's from his head onto the page it feels he's very in tune with his sensibilities as a writer yeah, I've also discovered in my reading that there's two types of King books. There's hopeful books and there's bleak books. Oh, tell, most, tell me more. And most of the bleak books tend to be Richard Bachman ones. You know, they're bleak throughout. Mm. You know, we talk about road work. We have this very apathetic character and this apathetic situation. It's a character that doesn't do anything for the entirety of the book. You know, he has the whole book is in action. Pet Cemetery is one of the first times that it's a King book where it's King name in the title, but it's so bleak in terms of like, there, there isn't any hope in this book. You know, when the destruction starts, when Church dies, and then when, you know, when Gage dies, it's just a downward trajectory of just, this is going to destroy this these people. And, you know, there isn't that in the other King books where there's always this choice, like Salem's Law or The Shining. There's always like, if you're willing to fight for it, you will, you know, there's a potential you survive through your own wit and your own resources. But yeah. There, so that's that's sort of what I've noticed. There's there's hope in most of them, and then there's this other side of bleakness that he sometimes is indulges in, mostly with the Batman stuff. And maybe that's the real reason why the Batman was created. Yes, to see, you know, what would be the impact on on the readership yeah. and the, and the commercial sales of that, but probably more from an artistic point of view, from a writer's point of view, a chance to just really unleash, right? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And really, really go dark. So yeah, what a what a tale. What a tale. Um, so we're we're at that point where, well, we're not even towards the end of the 80s. I mean, we're nowhere near because what a period, right? But this feels like maybe a moment to have a breather and have a reflect. Yeah, I think the audience should know that we fairly planned to do the eddies in one session, and <laughs> we were very ambitious with the fact of there's so much in the eddies to talk about, and yeah, we definitely need a break for our own minds to recover. <laughs> yeah, and two right. So while while our minds just cool down, and then we resizzle them up. Thank you, as always, for listening to us. And we have got Don't Go Anywhere because we have got so much more lined up for you. Jamie, as always, thank you so much, my friend. Been such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Size was written and presented by Matt Robinson and Simon Balkan. Edited and produced by Matt Robinson. Music, Storm Coming by Last Picture Show, available on Spotify. Find us on Instagram at King Size Podcast. If you like what you hear, please drop us a review and subscribe to the show.